Well, church, um, I love and miss you. <laughs> I want to say that up front. Um, Judith Ann does as well. I think actually all our friends in Gaithersburg know that we love and miss you too because we talk about this church a lot. Um, it's been six months since we were last here and I've been looking forward to being back here uh, since that day. And uh, walking in here and seeing your faces, uh, the familiar faces and the new faces, has really been overwhelming for me. Uh, Just a quick update on my family. As Corey mentioned, uh, we have a new addition. Her name is Vivian. She was born in late September of 2011. She's about five months old now, and um, she's doing wonderful. Uh, Marilyn, the daughter who many of you know, she was born here in Miami, is like two and a half now. I come home, there are new words she's saying uh, every day, and uh, Judith Ann is uh, just doing great, guys. Um, thank you for your prayers. She, she asked me to send her love to you. Uh, she's so grateful for uh, each one of you, and I am too. Um, the Pastors College, uh, I want to give you a quick update there. What Jose told you is, True, Jose Prado was there two years ago, and I remember him coming back here and saying, yeah, the PC is very rigorous study, and uh, he's right, it is very rigorous study. Um, I've uh, come to realize, though, that I really need it. Uh, It's been a blessing to me, and I personally don't want it to end. I wish it would keep going. Uh, We have 23 guys in our class. Uh, I think it's the largest class they've ever had. Um, God's been kind. We've been able to develop some really meaningful friendships with these men, with their families, and the staff at Sovereign Grace uh, are just wonderful people. Um, I think, you know, you just really get the sense when you're there that God, God is here. And uh, it's a huge blessing to us. So that's a little bit of an update. Uh, Like I said, I'm I'm excited to be preaching to you this morning. So if you have your Bible, please turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And while you're turning there, I just want to remind us of where we are in this series. Paul, Paul has just concluded chapter 1, praying for the Ephesians to know, as we saw on the screen, to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward you. The same power, Paul says, that raised Jesus from the dead and exalted Him above all other powers. And here in our text today, after praying that we would know this power shown toward us, Paul now describes how this power is shown toward us. In other words, God's immeasurably great power that raised Jesus from death to life has also been applied to your life. And in Ephesians 2, 1-7, through Paul describes for us what this looks like. So this is the direction we're headed Let's now read these verses together. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of of our body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, 
like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's pray, church. Father, thank You. Thank You, God. I am overwhelmed at Your kindness shown toward us, shown toward this church. We praise Your name for that, Lord. Thank You for how You've blessed them with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Thank You for the hope to which they have been called. Lord, I pray that today You would accomplish more of Your purposes for this church through the preaching of Your Word. Father, I pray that today You would manifest Your great power that You've shown towards us, that You would appear, Lord, in our hearts and that You would speak to us and touch our lives and transform our lives, Father. Lord, I am a mere man. I can't cause change to happen. But we believe in You, God. You're real. And we believe You're here among us. And we believe that You want glory this morning. So we ask that you, You change our lives, Lord, for Your glory. You present your glory amongst us. And may we rejoice, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would build this church and that you would give me clarity now to preach and that this would all be for your honor, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we all encounter moments in life that remind us we've been given what we do not deserve, don't we? These moments, they humble us and make us grateful people. Uh, Recently, one of these moments happened to me. Um, Each year around Christmas time, the the stubble fields usually take a family picture, make it into a card, and we send it out to friends and family. And uh, a few weeks ago, I got a phone call from a buddy of mine in college who received our card. He picked up his phone, called me, and because he knows me, jokingly said, Jason, um... You have a wonderful wife who loves you and two beautiful little girls. I just got one question. What in the world are you doing in that picture? Um, He was making fun of me, and uh, he really has plenty of reason to do so. In that moment, I I wanted to laugh, Uh, but I couldn't. Because in that moment, I realized I really have been given what I do not deserve. I'm not elevating having a family somehow over not having a family. I'm just saying for me, in that moment, I was deeply aware that God had completely changed my life. I was deeply aware that I had been given a new life. I was aware that I had been given what I do not deserve. And friends, in our text today, in these first seven verses, God is holding up His picture of your life and is saying to you that you too have been given what you do not deserve. You too have been given a new life. Your life also has been completely changed. And this change is the greatest change. 
It's a change in identity. It's a change in existence. It's a change from death to life. It is a total transformation. This is the picture. Friends, what God is saying in these verses to you and me today, what I believe this text tells us, why it was written to us, is this. God has transformed your total existence. That's what this picture shows us. God has transformed your total existence. The greatest change that could ever happen to any person has happened to you. And God wants us to know this truth. He wants us to be deeply aware of what He has done. That His power has transformed our existence. God has transferred us from death to life. And in our text, Paul wants us to consider two components of this transformation, two aspects of this picture. Here is what this change looks like. First, in verses 1 through 3, Paul wants us to see our former existence outside of Christ. And then in verses 4 through 7, Paul wants us to see our new existence in Christ. Okay? So, point one our former existence existence outside of Christ. In other words, who we once were as unbelievers. Prior to our salvation, what does Paul say was true of us? Look with me at verse 1a. And you were dead. Here we find our answer. In in verse 1a, Paul tells the Ephesian Christians that before their salvation in Christ, they were dead. And by by dead, Paul does not merely mean physical death, though this too is a result of our sin. But Paul is speaking of something far, far worse here. Here Paul is referring to spiritual death. A life separated from God. Paul later describes this life in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4 as being alienated or cut off from the life of God. Friends, this is not a this is not a spiritually connected life. This is not a seven steps to a better you life. This is not a, a born basically good or with a clean slate life Paul's talking about here. He's talking about a dead life. And we were once dead people. The the second word in this verse, the word you It's not a singular you, it's a plural you. It's like what some of us Mississippi folks say, y'all. So what Paul is saying is we all were once dead. All of us. This this has actually always been the case since the fall of man that's referred to in the book of Genesis, where Adam, uh, rather than obeying God's loving command to not eat of the tree, um, disobeyed God, and as a result, plunged the entire human race into a state of spiritual death. In Romans 5, Paul says, all die in Adam. His disobedience cut off the entire human race from God. So at the outset of our time together, this morning, as we pull back the curtains of our former lives, if in doing so we fail to see the gravesite in which we no longer lie, then we fail to see who we truly once were. Such was the existence of our former lives. And because of this, because we were once dead, this is who we once were, it greatly affected what we once did. 
In other words, our identity determines the sort of life we live. Listen, this is why God wants us to know that our lives have been transformed. Because how we live flows from who we are. And because we were once dead, we therefore lived a dead life. And Paul's getting ready to describe this life for us in these first three verses. He's getting ready to show us how dead people lived. Um, it's been snowing a lot in Gaithersburg lately, and one thing I like to do while walking in the snow is just to stop and turn around and, and just look at my footsteps that are behind me. I don't know why I like to do this. Uh, maybe it's because I lived in Miami the past four years and it never snows here. Um, I'm not sure, but one thing I do know is that when I do that, my footsteps tell me a lot about where I've been going and what I've been doing. And I think Paul is having us do something similar here. He's having us stop turn around and look at the footprints of our dead lives to see where we've been going, what we were once doing. And these footprints that Paul shows us are footprints that were marked by sin, captive to evil powers, and destined for destruction. Such are the footprints of the spiritually dead. And before we take a closer look at them, let me just forewarn you, they aren't going to make us look good. And you know how we all like to look good. They're not going to do that. Uh, These verses bring us low. They reduce our lofty egos. They bring us down from the thrones of self-adoration. But let me also encourage you, friend, because at the same time, these footprints describe, if you're a Christian, they describe your former life and not your present life. Okay? They show us that our greatest need has been met and that our life has been greatly changed. So they are humbling, but they're also very encouraging. Now let's, let's take a closer look at them. Look with me at verse 1b, the rest of verse 1. And you were dead, what? In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The first footprint we see here is that we were marked by sin. We were walking in trespasses and sins. This means we were living sinful and godless lives. We were going where we should not go and doing what we should not do. Always walking toward sin and never walking toward God. Actively disregarding God and constantly violating His commands. Though we were able to do some good, humanly speaking, and though we were not as bad as we possibly could have been, because we were marked by sin, none were good enough to save themselves. Not you, not me. Nothing in us could plead for God's acceptance of us. Though God is a loving God, we were unable to experience this love because God is also a holy God. And because He's holy, our sin separated us from Him. Sin marked every area of our lives. Every day, the status update on our lives read guilty of walking in sins and trespasses against God. Paul wanted to make sure the Ephesians knew that no one is good enough to merit salvation. It doesn't matter that we were it doesn't matter that the Ephesians were considered spiritually elite citizens because of the grandiose pagan temples in their city. Not even the Jews, Paul says, were righteous enough or spiritual enough to merit their own salvation. Paul's saying all, all were marked by sin. Their spiritual heritage could not save them, and their spiritual Works could not save them. And the same is true of us, friends. The same was true of us. We also were dead, marked by sin, and therefore could not save ourselves. If you're here this morning and are thinking that God will save you because of what you've done, hear what these verses are saying. 
It's not that doing good things in life is wrong. It's that doing good things does not merit salvation. Not only were we marked by sin, but Paul continues, we also also were captive to evil powers. Look down at verse 2 with me. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. The world, the prince of the power of the air, and the passions of the flesh all powerfully influenced the Ephesians. So much so that Paul says they were captive to these evil powers. Following and serving these evil powers. They were esteeming a world that's ideas and values God opposes. Not, this isn't planet earth. This, we're talking about an evil system that is hostile toward God and the gospel. And they were following the ruler of this world. Paul later names in Ephesians as the devil. And they were carrying out the passions of their flesh. This is not referring to the skin on our bones, but rather to the wicked desires, lusts, and cravings God forbids. So the Ephesians were captive to evil powers, and the same was true of us. We too once esteemed the ways of the world and carried out the passions of our flesh. We too all followed the prince of the power of the air. Our will, Jesus tells us in John eight forty four, was to do what his desires are. We were captive to these evil powers. They, they devoured us like dead bugs captured in a web and devoured by the spider. So too were we once dead, captured in the web of sin and being devoured by the world, the flesh, and the devil. So friends, we, we not only were not good enough to merit our own salvation, but we were also captive to these evil powers and as a result, we're powerless to save ourselves. And finally, at the end of verse 3, Paul tells us the ultimate outcome of such a life. Look down there with me. At the end of verse 3. And were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were, we were to be given over to the wrath of God. This is the final end to which the sons of disobedience meet. We were destined for destruction. Destined for God's wrath. And what Paul means by wrath is probably not what we Think. Paul's not referring to an outburst of anger or a bad temper like some of us may have. What Paul means by the wrath of God is, as John Stott puts it, God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Those who are children of wrath, and all of us are naturally born as such, are ultimately condemned by God. Marked by sin, captives to evil powers, destined for destruction. Such was our former existence outside of Christ. And the only reason this is not our present state of existence has nothing to do with anything that we have done, but everything to do with what God has done. When, when my friend saw our family picture and asked what in the world I was doing there, He said this because he knew who I once was and that left to myself, there was no way I would ever be in that picture. And friends, God wants us to know this as well. Because who we once were, left to ourselves, 
these verses would never describe our former lives. Left to ourselves, we would still be dead. Aren't you grateful? Aren't you humbled by the fact that we weren't left to ourselves? We truly have been given what we do not deserve, church. Your grave is empty. The footprints of your former life have been cleared away. You have been spared of total ruin. If you're a Christian, verses 1 through 3 no longer describe your, your life. You've been given a new life instead, which we will see in verses 4 through 7. If we're, to, if we're to know what God has done in transforming our total existence, right? That's what Paul wants here. If we're to know that, if we're to get this whole picture, we not only need to see our former life, but we also need to see our present life as well. We need to see the new life we've been given in Christ. We need to see that while we were destined for destruction, while we were captive to evil powers, while we were marked by sin, while we were dead, God gave us a new life in Christ. He transferred us to a new existence. Which is our second point. It's our new existence in Christ. Look at verses 4 through 6 with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul Paul begins this section in verse 4 with one of the most wonderful contrasts in all the Bible. But God. Just when we seemed utterly condemned... But God, just when our lives seem dominated by evil, but God, just when it looks like we would be dead in sin for all eternity, but God, friends, before we go on to survey the new existence God has given us in Christ, the fact that God has even entered the picture should open our mouths in awe. God has come. What's he doing here? Doesn't he know we deserved his wrath? Doesn't he know we were captive to evil powers? Doesn't he know we were dead in sin? Of course he does. But because he is rich in mercy, and because of the great love with which he loved us, God stepped in and rescued us. This is the only reason why verses 1 through 3 describe your former life and not your present life. There is simply no other explanation. This is the mercy of God on full display, friends. While we were dead in sin, God loved us. Not because of anything good in us, but because He is rich in mercy. Is this how you see God? When you think about God, do you ever... Think about Him as being rich in mercy. He is. And if you want to see the brightest and the most glorious display of His mercy, then you need look no further than the cross of Christ. Because it is there that God flung open the floodgates of His mercy. And it is there where sinners like you and me find forgiveness of our sins, are set free from evil powers, and escape the furious wrath of God. 
Christian, if you ever wonder, does God love me? If you ever wonder, is God for me? If you ever wonder, am I really forgiven? God is saying to you today, conclusively, unquestionably, yes. He has come at the cost of His only Son's life and has saved us. Not by duty. Not by obligation. No, Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved. Our salvation was totally unmerited by us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins against God, yet God, who is rich in mercy, called us by His grace to His Son through the Gospel and gave us a completely new life. In other words, while we were dead, God made us alive together with Christ. He transferred us from death to life. This idea of being made alive is, is called regeneration or, or being born again. It's, it's referring to a change from the inside out. It's a change in existence. And here's how it happens. Scripture tells us that this act of being made alive with Christ is accomplished by God the Spirit. Jesus says in John 6.63 that it is the Spirit who gives life. And here in verse 5, we see that the life He gives is none other than the life of our living Savior. He is the life we've been made alive together with. Jesus' life is the life the Spirit gives us. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And John tells us later that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Who does not have the Son does not have life. So the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ's life. And so Christ's life has now become our life. In a sense, we are who He is, and and He is who we are. This is the the new life we've been given. We've been made alive together with Christ. And this new life comes with new desires and aspirations. We no longer want to gratify the sinful desires, but instead, we want to obey God. We no longer follow evil powers, but instead, now follow God. God. We no longer love what the world loves, but now we love what God loves. This is is what happened when God made us alive in Christ. I remember experiencing God making me alive um, as well back in college. Um, I actually went to the University of Mississippi because it was the number two party school in the nation at that time. And uh, I love to party. I went to college to party for girls and to party some more. but when God, when God made me alive my senior year, I no longer love these things. But instead I loved reading my Bible and going to church and hanging out with other Christians. It was really bizarre. Uh, I didn't really understand what happened. And, and you know what? Neither did my friends I used to party with. I tried to explain to them, listen, I'm, guys, I'm not just trying to get my life together here or be a better me. Uh, I knew that stuff didn't work, and you know what? So did they. The only explanation I had for this change in my life is found here in this verse, friend. While I was dead, God made me alive. 
That's it. He, he transformed my total existence. If we think Christianity is about making yourself a better person or acting like you've got it all together, friends, you're missing the message. Christianity is not about that. Christianity is about God making dead people alive. And in verse 6, we see that when God does this, when He unites us to Christ's life, He also raises us up with Christ and seats us with Christ in the heavenly places. Because Christ's life is our life, His resurrection and exaltation is also our resurrection and exaltation. What happens to Him happens to you. You are where He is and He is where you are. His life is your life. The same resurrection power that raised and exalted Christ has also raised and exalted you. It's as if we've been brought from the deepest hell to heaven itself, says Calvin. God raised us from the dead and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. Now obviously we're all here right now, so this doesn't speak of our physical resurrection. But rather it speaks of our physical resurrection and exaltation. But the spiritual guarantees the physical. The resurrection and exaltation of believers really has taken place. Our grave really is empty. Death really is dead. Christ really has triumphed over the grave. You really are seated with Him in heaven. And He really is right now ruling and reigning over all creation, including your life and my life. No longer following the prince of the power of the air, but now we're instead seated with Christ in the heavenly places. No longer destined for destruction, but now destined for a glorious future in heaven with Christ. No longer sons and daughters of disobedience, but now sons and daughters of the living God. This is the new life Christ has given us. This is the hope to which we have been called. This is the immeasurable greatness of God's power in work in you, Christian And this reality of a transformed existence should also transform how we now live. Think about it. Because our citizenship is in heaven, our love for the world slowly diminishes and our love for God and His people gradually enlarges. Because Christ's victory over sin is our victory too, our desires and cravings for sin progressively decrease, and our desires to obey God and glorify Him steadily increase. This is the Christian life. It is a life that has been changed from the inside out. It's a transformed existence. And finally, uh, in verse 7, Paul reveals God's glorious purpose for all this. His glorious purpose for uniting our life with Christ's life. God's single end in view is this, Paul says, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, our lives will display God's immeasurably rich grace for all time and eternity. To quote one commentator, this was God's publicity program for the whole of history and beyond. 
God planned a continuing exhibition of His favor towards man through all eternity. Church, God will forever reveal through our transformed lives the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us. Rather than being objects of His wrath for all eternity, we will instead be recipients of God's kindness for all eternity. Why would God do this through you and me? What's so special about us? Here's why. We are in Christ Jesus. That's why. And God did this so that He could show all creation, all cosmic powers, all the heavenly hosts, to every man and to every woman, that His mercy is rich, His love is great, His grace is immeasurable, and His kindness never ends. If you're a Christian, God never stops being kind to you. He never stops being kind to you. He never stops considering you or working for your good. Now, because we still live in a fallen world where the presence of sin remains, we do at times experience pain and suffering and loss. We sometimes doubt if what God is really doing is kind. Friends, God wants us to know that He has regarded your every tear, all your pain, all your fears, and all your sufferings. And that His kindness to you through these times will never end. You can expect it every day. How do I know this? I know this because God didn't spare His Son for you, Christian. And that while you were dead, God made you alive together with Him. And even in Ephesians 1, He he chose you before the foundation of the world. He predestined you for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. He redeemed your life by His Son's own blood and forgave you of your sins. He obtained you as His own inheritance and He sealed you with His Holy Spirit. God has shown you kindness every day in your past and God will show you kindness every day in your future. And eventually there will come a day when He will wipe away every tear and there will be no more sin, no more loss, and no more pain. And we will reign with Him forever in all eternity. There will come a day when the last trumpet will sound and our bodies will rise from the graves and we will see Jesus face to face. There will come a day in the twinkling of an eye Christ will appear and we will be made like Him. This is the future hope our union with Christ gives us. Our total existence has been transformed. It really has. And forever, God will now show us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward you. When I, when I hung up the phone with my, with my buddy that day, uh, I just began to thank God for what He had done. I think I went and bought Judith Ann flowers and and told her, thank you for being my wife. I I held my daughters and told them how much I loved them. I was just so grateful to be in that picture and hopeful for the years ahead. And friends, how much more should our response be to God, one of gratefulness and hopefulness for what He has done? On days we are tempted to grumble, this picture helps us to have gratitude. On days we are tempted to be thankless, 
this picture helps us to be thankful. On days when your circumstances cause you to doubt God's kindness to you, cause you to wonder, does God even care? This picture helps us to have hope that yes, He is being kind. He does care. In fact, He's transformed your total existence. You were once dead, but He made you alive. United you with Christ. Uh, before I close, um, I, I want to ask this question. Where, where do you see yourself in this picture? Has God transformed your total existence? Are you alive in Christ? Or are you dead in sin? Do verses 1 through 3 describe your former life? Or do they describe your present Friend, if these verses describe your present life, I appeal to you today to please turn from your sins and run to the mercy of God and believe in Christ. Today can be the day that your life changes. Today can be the day that God makes you alive. Friend, God is rich in mercy And He's calling you to run to Him. Run to the cross. Find forgiveness of your sins. Find freedom from evil powers. Find refuge from His wrath. There may not be another day you have to do this. And I believe He's appealing to some of you to do this. And He's rich in mercy. You can go to Him. And if you are here and are alive in Christ, oh my. What in the world are we doing in this picture? Aren't you grateful for? Aren't you humbled by what God has done? While you were dead, God made you alive. He gave you a new life in Christ and you are united to Him forever and will for all eternity be shown grace and kindness. God has transformed our total existence, friends. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed by what you have done. Thank you that you have told us who we are. Thank you that you've transformed our existence. Thank you that long before we get to the latter half of the book of Ephesians, where we start learning how you want us to live, you want us to first learn what you've done in us. That you've transformed our total existence. Lord, may our lives continue to bring you glory. Lord, may we not doubt. May we have faith. Father, I I pray that you would shower your love on this church and that they would continue to love one another as transformed lives. May you do this for your glory. Amen.